a lot of the work we're doing is about really just giving people the space to be heard. And I'm always surprised about where somebody will go and what makes them feel really connected to you if you just hold space for them. Welcome to Teach Me Something New. I'm your host, Britt Morin, and this is a production of iHeartRadio and Brit & Co. All my life, everyone's told me I should focus on being good at one thing. But the truth is, I'm curious about a lot of things. But how do you learn about everything? The answer? Make the world's best experts teach you in less than an hour. So come along with me as we all learn something new. On today's show, you're getting a sneak peek into one of our live classes of self-made, our virtual startup school accelerator for female entrepreneurs, wherein I get the backstory of one of the most transformative fitness brands of our time, SoulCycle. That's right, co-founders Julie Rice and Elizabeth Cutler join me to dive into the origin story behind their revolutionary cycling community and share how it gained its cult-like following. If you've ever taken one of their candlelit spin classes with high energy music blasting in the background, you know exactly how motivating and, dare I say, soulful these workouts can be. Julie and Elizabeth describe how they were able to market their business in an era before Instagram and their secret to dynamite company culture. They also offer a sneak peek into the brand new business they're building called Peoplehood. Welcome to the show, Julie and Elizabeth. Hi, Britt. Thanks for having us. So good to see you. I know. I've known you guys for a little bit of time, but I don't feel like we've ever like really gone into depth about how you not only built SoulCycle, but also how you are now building another company because you just couldn't stop. So I have so many questions. But first of all, I want to tell you my SoulCycle story, which is that I grew up in Texas. I considered myself like a runner. I was a soccer player. Like I never rode a bike ever. Like, I mean, when I was five, probably. But so then fast forward and I am pregnant at 28 and I can't run anymore because my bladder explodes on me every time I try to run. And everyone's like, well, you should try riding a stationary bike. And I'm like, well, that sounds so boring. And they're like, but have you tried SoulCycle? And I was like, I can never do that. That seems so intimidating. And then I went for the first time. Someone convinced me. And I was like obsessed. And I was maybe five months, six months pregnant. And I went like four times a week up until, I'm not lying, my 42nd week of pregnancy because this baby did not want to come out of me. And I was like carrying a basketball on my belly, riding this bike, like jamming to Beyonce. And it was just so beautiful because I was just so happy, fit. My baby now is six and he's awesome and he loves music. And I'm convinced it's because I went to Soul Cycle. So thank you for making my child awesome and for making him love Beyonce more than anything. But I do want to ask you like, okay, so we all know the Soul Cycle name. We know it's the place to go for cycling. It's become ubiquitous in homes across the country, even for people that want to work out in their home or in a studio. But where did all of this come from? Like, we all start our companies with an idea. So which one of you started this idea and how did that happen? Oh my God, it was a pregnancy. It was definitely a pregnancy. <gasps> There's no same doubt. Same thing. Yes, same DNA. Exactly. I gained so oh much gosh. weight when I was pregnant and I could not figure out how to get it off of my body. And one of my really close friends dragged me to a spin class and I was like, oh my God, I can do that. I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. Anyone can do it. Anyway, that was a big part of how SoulCycle came to be 
in my life was that I couldn't find a class that really spoke to me. And so I figured I would have to create it for myself so that I could find a place to go work out and keep myself healthy. And it's exciting to hear that that was part of your journey as well, because there is so much that goes into having these little people come in and out of us and to be able to help them and help us in concert is pretty cool. Wait, so what was missing for you? Like we talk about when we are starting companies, we're creating solutions to problems. So you went to a spend class, you enjoyed it, but what were the problems that you wanted to address? So to be honest, I enjoyed it, but I didn't really enjoy it. I mean, I wanted to like it more than I could. I just felt like this could be so much more. This could feel like a real experience. If somebody created a room for me where I could find myself and where I could get pushed harder than I ever would by myself, by somebody who was inspiring me and not screaming at me and telling me there's an 800-pound gorilla and I need to go faster, faster, faster and hit my RPMs, like that was super demotivating. And it made me feel like I actually couldn't stand being in there. Like I literally wanted to walk out. But I felt like the act of it and the connection with music and the connection with the rhythm and the connection with myself as a result of that had such a huge impact on my being that if it was choreographed, if it was set up in a room that felt good, and if there was a beautiful brand that wrapped around it, then something could really happen. And honestly, Julie and I met and we bonded over those exact same principles. And that allowed for us to come together and really create this chemistry to build a company together. And Julie, where did you meet Elizabeth? Were you at a spin class or how did this happen? So it's 2005 and I had just moved back from California. Elizabeth had moved from Colorado. And I think New York at the time, like Elizabeth said, exercise, it was something on your to-do list. It was about how many calories you could burn. It was about how competitive you could be with your neighbor. And I think the two of us coming from lifestyle cities really had this different interpretation about what it felt like to find joy in your body, right? I mean, in California, I would go hiking and swimming and biking. And it was really about a recreational lifestyle, about making movement part of your life that was joyful. So I had moved back to New York and Elizabeth had moved back to New York in the same year. Ironically, we both had kids that were about five months old. It was Elizabeth's second daughter and my first. And we were taking classes at different gyms. I mean, you have to picture what the landscape looked like at this time. There was no boutique fitness. And I say this only to say that we not only had to create a product, but we actually had to create a marketplace, which was pay-per-class fitness that did not yet exist in New York City. And so... I was taking a spin class at one gym. And like Elizabeth said, it was the best of the sort of the worst version of spinning. And Elizabeth was taking classes at a different gym. And we were introduced by a mutual instructor. And we had lunch one day in January. And we had the same vision about what it could be to create an exercise environment that felt different. And I remember leaving that day. And Elizabeth said to me, you know, I'm going to look for real estate. And you research towels. And I'll call you on Thursday. And that's really what happened. Honest to God, she called me on Thursday and she said she'd found something on Craigslist. It was an old dance studio that was 1,300 square feet in the rear lobby of a building. And we could sublet it for five years. And we went and looked at it and it was perfect. You know, we got some furniture. We built a front desk from Ikea kitchen cabinetry. We had a glass wall put in so we could separate our 1,300 square feet into 800 square feet of the studio. And the rest was the office, the locker room, the changing rooms, and everything else in that 400 square feet, our retail. 
And five months later, we opened. And it was one of those kind of like, better not to know what you don't know, because we had never done anything like this before. Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, what were you doing before that? And what were the emotions running through? Obviously, you were excited, but were you like totally out of your element, freaked out? And how did you get the capital to actually rent this 1,300 square foot dance studio? Well, emotionally, I felt desperate. I could not even handle how much I needed to move my body and how unmotivated I was to do it. And if I could find a way to motivate myself, that was like my way out. So for me, it was total desperation. And after we found the space on Craigslist, I was talking to my husband and I was like, listen, I really want to start a spin studio. And he had a great job at Lehman Brothers at that time, which is a bankrupt bank, which was a crazy part of our journey as a couple. But at that time, we just decided, what is the downside? Let's just give this a try. And having met Julie, I just felt such a kinship with her. We had so much alignment and we really understood what we both wanted and we both wanted the same thing. We're such different people that it took so much of the stress actually out of it. It doesn't mean that we didn't have stress every single day and that we had challenges every day. There was crazy stuff that went on between learning about soundproofing and learning about how to build technology and learning about how to train teachers and learning about how to sign leases. And you're learning every day, but it just gave us kind of the confidence to go forward because we had each other. And what was that first experience like? How would you say the idea might have shifted, if at all, from that first class that was ever taught in that 800-square-foot studio to what SoulCycle is today? It's interesting. When we look back at the design of the first SoulCycle and sort of the initial principles of what we've envisioned, it actually is not all that different, believe it or not. Elizabeth and I like to say, you know, SoulCycle was sort of our love child. And I would say that intuitively and instinctually, it was really a lot of the experiences that Elizabeth described looking for really were translated. I think that over time, we were able to sort of codify it and perfect it. I would say that the main difference is that in the beginning, it was like really hit or miss, right? So some teachers really understood our vision because neither of us ever got on a bike and taught a class. I mean, we never did that, which also was very unusual for people that were not fitness instructors to open some sort of a fitness business. But we actually realized pretty early on that the model of sort of one fitness guru, one studio was a lovely small business, but you couldn't scale one human being's legs to teach tens of thousands of people a day. And what we ultimately learned was that if we wanted to scale this business and have eventually however many studios, it was really about creating a brand that we could scale. So I would say in the beginning to answer that question, it was really just sometimes the articulation of the class was right and sometimes it wasn't. It definitely took us a while to sort of create a uniform product. Some was really good and some was really bad. Yeah, because so much of your product is the fitness instructor. I mean, these soul cycle instructors go on to have cult followings of their own, right? So how did you initially recruit the right people? And did you have to fire a lot of people really quickly? I'm assuming in the beginning, there are a lot of hit or miss instructors as well. You asked what I was doing before. I actually was a talent agent in Hollywood before. So I think part of the reason that the business really worked was that we really thought of our fitness instructors like talent 
And part of what Elizabeth and I set out to do actually in the beginning was to create careers for fitness people. Before we started SoulCycle, the industry was super broken. If you were a great fitness instructor, you had to personal train five people and teach two classes here and two classes there. There was really no way to have like a career and health insurance and a paid vacation in one sort of home place. So we took that off the table for people and we said, we're really going to invest in these people, both in terms of paying them above market rates, giving them great benefits. And most of all, what we really invested in was the training. So I would say the way that we found these people, we really cast them. We really didn't look for fitness instructors. The main thing we used to say when we looked for people was, would I want to have lunch with you? Can I connect with you? And can you connect with me? And could you connect me with another person? It was really all about people's ability to connect to other human beings. The fitness, we realized that we could actually teach them, but sort of the people skills, the connection skills, those were much harder to give people. And so we really looked for human beings that could relate to other people, that could both be vulnerable and inspire. And that was really what we were looking for a lot of the time. Yeah. I've had so many instructors, by the way, that I'm like, they forever changed my life because they're basically my therapist. They're not just like my fitness instructor, they're my therapist. And I know that a lot of people cried. I mean, it's called soul cycle, right? By the way, beautiful name, a nice compound word. You want something that's distinct and differentiated, but also obvious that represents the brand. So you guys did that so well. And these people are kind of like your therapists. Are there any downsides to that? Like, what happens when one of them decides to leave or do they take their people with them? Like, did you have a lot of drama because people get so invested in these instructors? I think we always treated our instructors really well, not just monetarily, but I think that we really knew them and we were really sort of all operated kind of like a big family. So I think we were all so invested in each other and people were generally pretty happy I mean, for us, really, our product was and still is people. And when we say people, not really just our customers, you know, we're big Simon Sinek fans and we always say your happiest customer is only as happy as your happiest employee, right? And so we really doubled down on ensuring that our culture and that the people that we worked with were happy because we knew that in turn they would treat our riders well. It's crazy because for a group of really dramatic people, our instructors, we really had very little drama with people sort of trying to leave or take people with them. Yeah. You're so ahead of the time, like we've said, because these people became fitness influencers. And now you see that everywhere today. And it has become its own art, its own job and skill. But I want to go back to like, as you were building this, okay, so you borrowed some of your own capital to get started. A lot of times funding is where most people get hung up, right? In a physical brick and mortar business, that's really expensive. You have to invest in bikes and the space and the the Ikea furniture. So at what point did you know this was working well enough to go to the second studio? And or when did you decide maybe I should take some outside investment to make this thing bigger? Well, I think it's when the community built. So as people started to come to the front desk, by the way, the way that you got to the front desk was through a lobby, 
down a hallway, which doubled as the locker room. And by the time that the locker room spit you out, you were at the front desk. And so it was almost like a surprise that you had found us. And so we're so excited to see you. And I think that we had such a gratitude when somebody like made those steps that we would develop a rapport and a connection with people. And as a result of our, I think, enthusiasm and also what people were finding in those rooms, the rest of the people who were coming to these classes there was a barrier broken so that they could connect with each other. They'd see each other on a Tuesday and a Thursday. And so once that community started to really spin up and people started to know each other, we started to notice like somebody wasn't here and then they came back and oh, we noticed you were gone. What's been going on? And then they would explain sort of what was going on in very human terms about what's happening in a person's life. You start to get to know people in their lives and start to get to know people for where they are right now. And that became like a very powerful and very honestly, like beautiful thing to be a part of. So anyway, as that spun up, we realized that there was so much capacity and interest in this in other neighborhoods. And so people would say to us, can you be in this neighborhood? Can you be in that neighborhood? And so very soon after we started looking for more space, but it became super expensive and we were having a hard time finding anything. And then for better or worse, that financial crisis in 2008 hit and it gave us an opportunity to go sign a bunch of leases, which we did. And that really allowed our business to start to scale up. But I think one thing that I should mention is the first summer after we had opened, we decided to do a test studio in an area outside of New York where some people vacation is an area in Long Island called the Hamptons. And we opened a studio there because we realized that if we were going to pay to market, it would cost us just as much money as it would to open a studio for the summer. And so we should try it so that we could give people the experience of what it was to do Soul Cycle. So overnight after we did that, people all over the city, because people were living in different neighborhoods, knew who we were. And we were near an express train. And so it allowed us to be more accessible to people throughout Manhattan, as opposed to just in the Upper West Side where we had our first studio. So as you're starting to scale and you're talking about this amazing community, you're probably noticing a lot of the same types of people or like, how did you drill into like, who is my core customer? And was it the same person you thought it would have been from the very beginning? It's interesting. In the beginning, it was a lot of moms that dropped their kids off at school and then wanted to exercise afterward. And because we were young moms, we thought, oh, we created this business for us and this is who's coming. But those were sort of only the early adopters. What it turns out, we always like to say about SoulCycle is that SoulCycle was really a human experience. It kind of defied demographics in the end. A lot had to do with the location of where the studios were. Downtown in New York in Union Square, you might see a lot of young 20-something professionals after the end of a workday. They might have a very busy evening. In Los Angeles, in Brentwood in the morning, you might see a very busy after-school drop-off. In downtown New York City at 5 in the morning before Wall Street opened, we had classes that were full of people that were going to work at 5 in the morning on Wall Street. So it was really fascinating. I have to say that by the time we were open for five or six years, it's like our youngest riders were 10 years old and our oldest riders were 80 years old. And we just saw everybody in between. And the really cool thing is that 
It became an intergenerational experience. It became something cool that kids and parents would do together and they could finally sort of relate to the same music or have something common to talk about. Couples would come and they would find a commonality in this hobby that they had together and it would improve their relationship. I think in the beginning, we probably thought, oh, this is an exercise class for women that have time in the morning. And it ultimately really crossed over into so many demographics. How would you actually advise anyone starting a company right now to think about defining their core customer in the beginning and talking to them? Like, how distinct do they need to be knowing that it can ebb and flow as you grow? First of all, I think it really depends on what the business is, obviously. I personally think that the more specific that you can get in the beginning, we always said we sort of found our evangelists and they help spread the word for us. I also think in a physical business, what we sort of began to understand was that if we had three, 400 riders in each of these small studios, that was kind of enough to make a studio work for us. If we had 300 riders that each came once or twice a week, we sort of did the math and we figured out we didn't need. And I think that's something that's really interesting, too. I also think the digital universe is so big and we're all used to thinking in such big numbers now because we can reach the whole world that sometimes it makes it actually more daunting than helpful. We're actually getting ready to launch a digital business pretty soon and it will be a combination, but in the end, it'll be a sort of a digital scale on it. And I mean, sometimes my head could explode thinking about like, how are we going to reach everyone? How are we going to talk to everyone? How am I going to adapt this for other countries, right? But the truth is, I think sometimes when you really think about who are the first people that will use this product, how do I talk to them? How do I find them? How do I really narrow in that circle and create something great that those super users could not just use, but they could love? And then I think you begin to sort of create momentum around something. Yeah. And I love what you're saying about the evangelist, because that is organic marketing at its best. You did not have to pay for those people to wear SoulCycle t-shirts, which like probably when there was a new brand was like rare to see a SoulCycle t-shirt around. Now you see them everywhere. So what other kind of marketing tips would you offer as someone is getting their business started, like what things worked well for you to build that brand and that community? Look, when we started SoulCycle for perspective, there was no Instagram, right? So let's really flash back there and just say that at the time we had baby scrollers, we had five-month-old kids, we would push them up and down Broadway, seeing if shopkeepers would take our flyers, if we could leave them in mail rooms. I mean, a fun fact is that in the entire time that Elizabeth and I were running SoulCycle, we never paid for advertising ever. Celebrities came, people wore our shirts because they loved them. We never paid celebrities to come. We didn't even give them free stuff. For us, our marketing was our customer service. People came to SoulCycle and they felt like we actually gave a shit about them. <laughs> and we did. We loved them. It's like Elizabeth said, when they showed up, I mean, we were in the rear lobby of this building in a concept that nobody had ever heard of, that giving classes that people thought were already included in their gym membership. I mean, people wouldn't come to SoulCycle and say, why is this spin class better? They would say, like, why would I pay for this when I can get this for free at my gym? So for us, we had no choice but to make people feel like they were so important to our community, like we cared so much about their happiness, about their health, about them being there. 
that it was really our marketing. Our product was really our marketing. We didn't care if you came. We care if you came back. And I think that's what it was always about for us. And I still sort of believe in that. I've worked at bigger companies now where we have enormous marketing budgets and you can watch the acquisition versus the churn. And it's like those numbers could just blow your mind. Like, wow, we acquired 500,000. We lost 467,000. So really, I guess my question is, if we just focused on making 30,000 happy, wouldn't it have just been like a sum-sum game? (laughs) You just got 30,000 happy customers. Totally. So I don't know. To me, that always has been the best way to market. Obviously, that's oversimplifying how you get a word out. But I do think, especially as you're thinking about starting a small business, the bringing people back can never be underestimated. People tend to overfocus on acquisition mm-hmm. and underdeliver on product. And I think that's really a mistake. Uh, and customer service, too. I just don't feel like in this era of digital marketing, customer services, it's so difficult because you're not human face-to-face, your social media and your email customer. It's like you have to work harder at customer service to help people know that you really care and your eyes light up when they see you like they would if they walked into your studio. And isn't that all anyone wants in life is to be seen? It's like when my six-year-old comes into the room, even if I'm having a bad day, I've got to light my eyes up and be like, hello, it's so good to see you. And that's all anyone wants, but it's so hard to do that digitally. And you guys had the opportunity to do that in a physical way. So what were the biggest challenges along the way? And can you also speak to how having a co-founder helped you navigate that or maybe hurt you (laughs) if you're willing to share through some of those key challenges you endured? I'll definitely answer that. I also just wanted to say one more thing about what Julie said, which was we use a lot of our channels as customer service. So like we use Twitter as customer service. And in fact, people would at SoulCycle and somebody actually came up with the idea of Soul Ferry. We didn't do it. One of the customers did. Like, Soul Ferry, can you get me a bike? And so that was like a very natural kind of fun thing that came out of just our love of customer service and our commitment to the community was to try to serve them wherever they were trying to connect with us. So I just felt like that was sort of a worthwhile thing to mention. This is a good tip that you guys had too. You only opened up bikes or classes Monday morning, right at 8 a.m. It was kind of like the sneaker drop. I feel like before the sneaker drop happened, like the supply and demand thing like freaked everyone out because they got so much FOMO. They were not going to get the class they wanted or the time they wanted. So you like logged on at 8 a.m. to like book your class. Noon on Monday, Britt. We had t-shirts that said noon on Monday. Noon on Monday. Yeah, noon, noon, noon. Sorry. But I would log on at like 12.05 and be like, no, the 7 a.m. is full. And it just makes you want it more, right? Whatever you can't have, you want more. So that's just an interesting business tip and trick. Okay, so now talk to me about the challenges. I mean, there was a lot of stuff every day and every other day, something bad (laughs) would happen. One thing that was pretty bad was that we were getting ready to scale and we had a bike that Schwinn made that everybody loved. Everybody was like, this is the best bike ever. Like, there's no better bike. There will never be a better bike. Like, this is the bike. And they stopped making it after the recession. So we literally went on a mission to buy every single one of those bikes that was left on planet Earth and put it in a a warehouse so that we would have bikes to open new studios with and that we would have parts to maintain our bikes. So that was terrifying because our only business was indoor cycling. So to not have a bike to be able to do that. 
then we were able to develop a bike over a couple of years, but that takes time. So that was a huge challenge. And the other thing was just like timing. We were really trying to find these studios, but the real estate was so expensive and it was just so stressful to not be able to serve people and have people log on at 12.05 and have the 7 a.m. be sold out. Like that's annoying. Like I don't want that to be your experience at SoulCycle. So that was kind of being able to meet the needs and be able to control supply and demand was very, very frustrating. We also did not know a single thing about soundproofing and our neighbor upstairs, even though he was a gym and our first location was a total jerk about it. And he was dropping very heavy weights like multiple times a day. But God forbid, like one of our instructors turns the music up too loud, which they all did, even though we begged them to like keep it at a moderate level. That was total impossibility and remains so to this day. (laughs) Those kinds of things, like he just would get so frustrated and want to call the cops and every day something crazy would go on. Yeah. I like to tell people that entrepreneurship is not a zero or a 10. It's both of those things throughout the day, all day long, every day. You never just have like a seven day. I don't think every hour it's like up and down and up and down. And you sort of become a seven because you're just like panning out and slightly optimistic that you're going to keep going. And what about you guys as co-founders? So you've now walked away from SoulCycle and you're starting a new business, which we're going to talk about. You've started it already. But what kept you guys going? And do you recommend that people have co-founders? It's worked for us. I love getting to create with Julie. It's been like the greatest gift of my life to get to do this with her. I think if you find the right co-founder, that's really the issue. And then making sure that you don't do exactly the same things well, because that's redundant. And yet, if you're very different, that you share enough commonalities and enough common vision so that you can have a really strong relationship is essential. And then we did a bunch of coaching because I had a full panic attack one Sunday night at 11.55 and Googled Life Coach NYC when I started breathing again. And we ended up with a coach that I started seeing that really helped me find time in my life. I had two young children and I had a husband who was always at work. And then I was always needing to be at work and everybody needed me and there wasn't enough of me to go around. And I was incredibly strung out and it was hard. So that kind of coaching and that kind of the lessons that we learned from that around communication and around like really understanding where somebody else is coming from, even if it's not what's going on for you, became a cornerstone and like a very relevant thing that we not only did with each other, but any tool that we learned from that coaching we shared with the organization so that they would have the benefit of knowing how to use those skills with one another and feel better about the colleagues that they had. And it sounds like some of those skills are things that you've incorporated into your new company, Peoplehood. Is that correct? Very much so. Can you tell us a little bit about Peoplehood and where that inspiration came from? Because you guys are just on a tear. (laughs) Soul cycle, Peoplehood. So tell us a little bit about what's new for you, you starting over again. Well, we have taken a little bit of a break in between, that's for sure. But I think to the point of how much we enjoy our partnership, I think that's part of the reason that we have decided to give it a second whirl. But we're starting a new company. It's called Peoplehood. And this is an experience that we are calling relational fitness. They are one-hour experiences where people learn how to breathe a little bit. They have a place to come to connect with other people. And we are teaching relational skills to help human beings 
learn to hear each other differently, learn to communicate differently, learn to appreciate each other differently. We really believe that of all of the things that we are taught in this life, one of the things that we're not really taught is how to be in productive relationships with each other. We wait until our relationships are crumbling to seek therapy or until we are feeling lonely or unhappy to try to figure out some sort of an answer to it. And so for us, you know, we believe like physical fitness, relational fitness is something people should be practicing several times a week. Deep connections with people don't just happen. There's a structured way to have those conversations. And as we look at the landscape of what's going on out there, we can see that Physical fitness has become a huge part of our culture and the zeitgeist and a big business and nutrition the same. Mental health is finally coming to the forefront and there's a real awareness around it. And those are all things that focus on taking care of yourself. And yet there's really nothing out there where we focus on how we take care of each other, how we take care of the relationships that we're in. And ironically, if you look at the end of a life, if you ask people what was the number one thing that helped predict not only their emotional health, but also their physical health, it really was about the relationships that they were in. And so we think people need these skills starting at their kitchen tables, and we think they can use them in the United Nations and in our globe and in our planet and in communities. And so we are getting ready to launch this both physically and digitally. And so we're really excited about it. We think that it's really, you know, sort of like SoulCycle was back then. We really believe it's a new category. And much like what Elizabeth said about the origins of SoulCycle, I think for us, it's something that we really feel like we have needed so much in our life. We have been lucky enough to have our coach, have each other. We've both done a lot of couple and marital work and context like this where we learn different skill sets. And I think that the ability to really turn these into an experience that people can access is something that hopefully people will really embrace. Oh, and I've enjoyed being a little fly on the wall as you guys were getting this going. And I think I was most surprised to see you would look at the two of you and think like, wow, such successful, amazing entrepreneurs, like totally crushed it with their first startup. And they're doing this new thing again. And it wasn't that you felt scared to confront the digital element of it, but you were like, I just don't really know this digital world. Like I know this physical brick and mortar world. And you were just so open to being, you don't know what you don't know. And you're asking for help. And you're just like, I'm going to figure this out though. Even though I'm like totally in a brick and mortar background, I'm going to crush this digital thing. I'm going to build apps. It was just so beautiful to see kind of the new beginner eyes all over again within the two of you that I hope everyone listening here understands is part of all of us throughout our whole life. Anytime we start something new, no matter how good we are at another thing, like we're all beginners every day with something in our life. And it's scary and intimidating, but being aware of it and asking for help and knowing that you're going to conquer it is the most important thing that you can do. It's just about practice and laps. And so can you give us any tips about what you've learned from peoplehood and just like literally communications tips for us as we are all working to create better relational fitness for ourselves, maybe kind of like a teaser of what we can expect to learn within peoplehood? I'm going to give everybody something to try tonight at their dinner table or when they see somebody later in the week or even on a Zoom later today. So why don't you ask somebody a question and then rather than sort of listen, thinking about your own response, 
you're just going to listen, right? So if I said to Elizabeth, tell me how you're doing, really? And then she would say, oh, I'm feeling okay. You know, the weather's got me down. Rather than me say, oh yeah, the rain has been terrible. I would just sit and wait. Probably after she would say, oh, the rain has got me feeling down. She would say, yeah, because also, you know, my daughter hasn't been feeling well. I think that you will be fascinated if rather than interject or try to connect with somebody over your own point of view, something that you also think or that happened to you, if you ask somebody a question and you just give them two minutes of absolute sort of open air time where the only thing that you say to them, if there is an uncomfortable pause in the conversation is, is there more? You will be shocked at where the conversation will go and what somebody actually really wanted to express and how much they actually appreciate feeling like they just have that space to be listened to. You know, we all repeat the same patterns, right? My husband and I have the same conversation about the same thing every single day, right? He doesn't like it when I order things we already have in the fridge, right? But the thing is, if he just gave me time to talk about it, maybe we'd get to the fact that I'm really insecure about running out of certain things, you know? But we never get there because it's always the same thing back and forth. And I think it's just really interesting. A lot of the work we're doing is about really just giving people the space to be heard. And I'm always surprised about where somebody will go and what they really wanted to share and what makes them feel really connected to you if you just hold space for them. Mm. And what if you're the introvert and your partner's the extrovert and they don't stop talking? Are you like, wait, it's my turn now. Two minutes for me, please. This is kind of what you're trying to build, right? This idea of taking turns to be heard. Yeah, exactly. So for example, Julie and I are experimenting with these tea timers that are three minutes each just to see what that's like. So that for an introvert, those three minutes could be long and they could feel kind of uncomfortable. But the act of somebody actually getting your world, the act of somebody really listening and kind of following your thought pattern without having their own thoughts go on is such a powerful experience that it works for both introverts and extroverts. And the thing is, like for me and Julie, the thing about SoulCycle was by the time you went through the whole experience, like you just felt better than when you walked in the front door. Maybe you released something, maybe you felt higher, maybe you just felt different. You just felt better. You felt like, okay, I'm ready for my day. And I think that that's the same thing that we're looking for and that we're finding in peoplehood is that when people come together and do these things together, we start to see ourselves in one another. I mean, I have no idea what's happening in the brain because I'm not a neuroscientist, but I'm just saying something for real is happening in there. So when I'm done with it, I'm like, wow, what just happened? And I just feel so much better. So this one tip that Julie's just mentioned is such a great way to just experiment for yourself and to see what that's like, just showing up. I love this so much. And so this is a digital thing. And also you're doing this physically as well. So this kind of this new hybrid. What are those sort of insecurities in your beginner eyes again as you seek to start something new? Are there any fears you guys have or challenges you're overcoming? <laughs> How much time do you have? Three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more, Elizabeth. <laughs> I think it's scarier the second time. 
our expectations the first time around really were we wanted to see a hundred people fill our bikes every day. And we knew that if we saw a hundred people a day, that we would be able to pay for some childcare, take home a small amount of profit and do something that we loved. And that was really the goal that we set. And that really was the business plan. There wasn't much more than that. There wasn't a document anywhere. It was something that we wrote on the back of a Starbucks napkin that Elizabeth has framed still. Look, we made so many mistakes. And the great thing I will say about having a partner is we each have different tolerances for different things. And I just remember so many times we would make mistakes that would cost us $10,000 or $20,000 and I would just be dying about it. And Elizabeth would say, like, we didn't go to business school. Just think about it as our tuition. And I always think about that. And I think like, oh, so true, you know, with all the mistakes that we made. But I don't think it ever feels less scary. I think that it does really sort of feel a little bit more scary this time because it feels like we have expectations and people have expectations. And I think that it actually took a minute. You know, SoulCycle was such a huge part of our identities and then ultimately such a huge part of our egos, to be honest with you, right? You know, we became sort of identified as, oh, the founders of SoulCycle, you know, and that sort of became such a big piece of who we are. So kind of just trying to step away from that and not put that expectation on yourself and just really think, you know, if 15 people come to this circle and learn to communicate differently or feel differently in their life, then that is what I went to do here today. And we actually just took a lease on a space in New York City. And I have to say, when I'm in that space with our team and I'm watching people experience it again, I can kind of feel the tingles in my body and I can kind of remember what we loved about doing that in the beginning. And I think in those moments, I feel sort of the most sure because like the scaries and the ego and the expectations all go away. And I feel like, oh, we're just really creating something that is going to help people feel better about themselves again. And there's a lot of joy in doing that, I think. Mm, can you double click on that, the internal feeling when you know you're sort of on the right path versus blocking out those negative fear emotions? Because I think this is something within our own intuition, we don't all learn how to understand because we're really bad as human beings of pausing and being still and listening to what's going on inside of us, but it's usually always guiding us to the right spot. So maybe like, tell us a little bit more about what feelings you follow when you know you're on to the right thing. I feel like for us, in terms of making those decisions and feeling like they are the right decisions, it's that each decision that we make, we try to make a good one. We try to make something that has a strong foundation. We really make an effort to be thoughtful and do something that is going to like, okay, this was the right decision. We can build on that. This next decision was the right decision. We can build on that. Of course, you're going to make tons of mistakes, but at least you start to develop a trust of yourself. Like I did my best when I made that one decision. I did my best when I made that second decision and so on. And so that kind of chain creates a longevity where you can get through a lot because you know that, yes, there's a problem here, but other stuff is still functional. And I think that a lot of what Britt just said is true. And what we've been talking about, if you actually gave yourself three minutes to just breathe and really check in and just see what is really true here, you will get the answer. You will know. It might not be the answer that you want to hear. It might not be the answer that you act on, but it's a great exercise to do 
to like take yourself out of fear and get yourself into more of a connection with your greater purpose and why you're doing this to begin with. Yeah. It's amazing to see how people light up when they think about what's possible, like their goals, these big dreams. I think the beauty lies when you can find that nice balance and you welcome the fear and the insecurity and the anxiety because you know there's this happiness, magic, tingle place inside of you and you sort of are moving through both of those every single day. So I think that's what we all want for ourselves, no matter if we're starting a business or we're just kind of moving through life in general, right? Conquering that fear, not shutting it out, but just living with it and moving through it. Okay, quick rapid fire questions as we wrap up here. I'll just go back and forth for each of you. Julie, I'll start with you first. So best part of being an entrepreneur? Collaboration. Elizabeth, worst part of being an entrepreneur? (laughs) It never ends. (laughs) Julie, what's your most essential work or productivity tool? Hmm. My big desktop computer. (laughs) Oh, like having a big screen. Yes. You can see everything. I'm twice as productive on my giant screen. Nice. Elizabeth, what's your favorite motivational mantra on a tough day? High road, long view. Oh, that's a good one. I haven't heard that before. Okay, for both of you, best piece of advice for anyone starting a business now in 2021? Julie, you first. My advice in 2021 or in any time is just that small steps lead to big businesses. I think that often we make ourselves overwhelmed trying to think of the whole big picture. And Elizabeth and I, in the very beginning, we used to each make a list each day of three things that we had to do and we were accountable to each other with those three things. And then the next day we would have a new list. And step by step, it's like we just figured it out. So I think small steps. Love it. Elizabeth? I think that Julie's right. I think every day, get something done. Every day, look at what's on your list and move whatever is most going to have the biggest impact to the top. And avoid people who are assholes if you can. It's not really worth it. And, you know, gut check it. Make sure that when you start a business, it's a business. There's a lot of things that you can explore in this lifetime. There's no reason not to explore those things. And I think that's great. But a lot of times people start a business, they know it's not really a business or they know it's not really good business. And it's not even an idea that they really like, but they have weird motivations for getting into it. Like really with the whole notion of manifestation, that is exactly the place where the real dreams live. And I just encourage you to continue to go back to that well. Yes. And lean on your community, everyone, on those days when you do feel alone. Julie and Elizabeth, thank you for sharing such beautiful stories of your journeys. I hope that they've inspired so many others out there to start and build their own and to pay it forward. And congratulations on SoulCycle. Bigger congratulations on peoplehood, doing it again, relational fitness. We can't wait to participate. So where can we find more information about that and about you guys if we want to stay in touch? You can go to peoplehood.com and you can sign up for our newsletter and our mailing list. And we are beginning in a couple of weeks. We're beta testing these circles internally now, but in just a couple of weeks, we'll be opening them up. So if you go to peoplehood.com and get on our list, we'll keep you updated with all the information. Love it. Perfect. 
Thank you. Thank you for being so real. Thank you for sharing your stories. Thank you for inspiring all of us and literally changing some of our lives. Like I said, my six-year-old will never be the same (laughs) with his Beyonce obsession. And thanks to everyone for joining today. Hope you had such an amazing time. Elizabeth and Julie, namaste. We'll see you guys again soon. Well, that's our show for today. If you liked what you heard, let us know by reviewing the show or dropping us a line on social media at Brit Co. or at Brit. Catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Teach Me Something New, a production of iHeartRadio and Brit Co. I'm your host, Brit Morin. Find more information about each episode at Brit.co slash listen. You can also find me on social media. I'm at Brit or follow us at Brit and Co. Teach Me Something New is executive produced by Ali Ives and Ali Perry with additional production and sound design by Mark Lemmerjazy and Aaron Peterson. 